I'm jealous of my former self, actually. Being a young director, you have a superpower. And I think that is being naive because no one taught you how the industry works. No one taught you how to do shit. I hope, I wish, even after this movie, that I can stay naive. You're listening to the Young Directors Award podcast. We're King Shi and we're your hosts. And this is episode three with Nicholas Larson. So here's a quick bio on Nicholas before we jump into the conversation. He started his career in front of the camera at age six as a child actor. His first short film won the Grand Jury Prize and Audience Award at the Gothenburg International Film Fest. And he's currently in post on his first feature film. It's called Mother Couch and it stars Ewan McGregor and Ellen Burstein. Here we go, Nicholas Larson. We had so much fun at dinner with you. You know, one of the things that we were chatting about after dinner, we were so struck by the fact that you signed to Iconoclast when you were 18, which is yeah. such an incredibly young age. How did you do that? And what was your journey to get there? It's funny because I worked at a company called Camp David. It was a, c- a company in Sweden. The way it started was me and Gustav and our friend and producer, Eric, who we later actually started Newland. We were just hanging out in the basement of Camp David making music videos. I was in Gustav's videos and he was in mine and, and we just made like a music video every weekend. And one thing led to another. That's actually how it started. Dude, that- that's dope as fuck. <laughs> it's fun, huh? It was really cool. I was listening to Adam Berg, and and he just won the Grand Prix for the Carousel. I don't know if you remember that Philips ad. Yep. And it was like he was the hottest thing. And I remember he got like casual phone calls from like Steven Spielberg and stuff at the office, and it was it was really cool. Like you I would just, pick up the phone, and it would be Steven Spielberg. Yeah, you know, yeah. He would like put speaker, and he was like, "It's fucking Steven Spielberg." I'm like. Is it? I think it's a prank. It must be a prank, Adam. <laughs> when Iconoclast started, they just reached out, basically. And I, I don't know, me and Gustav Johansson, we made like a couple of music videos and small, tiny commercials that on Vimeo was like viral or whatever. And they picked up on that. And it was a small company. We didn't know. I mean, truthfully, we had no idea it was going to take over the world as it did. Uh, Roman was there and we loved his work, but that was like before he was the Roman Gavrahi is now. And we just joined. So you basically were like all young filmmakers coming around to a young production company and coming up together. That's exactly it. Like our goal was never, we never looked at the big production companies. So like when Iconoclast called us, it was like, sure, I guess they're the only ones that want to sign us. Like, I guess this is a good thing. (laughs) And with Newland, are you one of the company owners? We kind of realized at Camp David at some point, we were the only one working really and we just like we can just do this ourselves so it's interesting the idea was to never grow we just like we're gonna keep it small like that's our goal like we're just gonna stay here we're just gonna find another basement and we're just gonna do our shit like literally two years later we're like the biggest production company in Scandinavia and we're like oh fuck like that's not good and then just like you know stuff happened and oh my god I love that you said that's not good when that's like every company owner's (laughs) dream (laughs) why is that good it's funny because we were sort of opposed to the big machine but it's sort of inevitable when you do good stuff like we did small stuff that grew bigger you know I remember my first Volvo ad was our first year uh Newland. It was a tiny Volvo thing that I made something out of. And all of a sudden it got awards or whatever. And we're like, all right, 
now the jobs grew. It wasn't by design at all, actually, and still isn't, I think. Even though it's bigger now, scale has never been a goal at all. I mean, the work you do with Volvo is insane. And I know that that's like a client that you've now cultivated for years and years and years. And your commercials are so uniquely artful and so filled with narrative. Oh, thanks, Rod. And you, you have the feeling that you're watching some kind of cut down of a feature film. Uh <laughs> How do you do that in the short form space, specifically in advertising? Like, how do you get that to happen? I, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, this sounds dumb, but I rarely read <laughs> the agency script before I write my own. Uh, <laughs> I think it gives you something. If you do the call with the agency and they tell you the idea, sometimes they walk you through the, the script or whatever. But if you, as a director, just approach it from the way, like, how would I write something to this idea? Then... It's something pure. And then later, maybe you can decide to read their script or not. But that's sort of how it started with Volvo. I got the brief and I just wrote my own little thing because I was a punk and naive and didn't care about money and stuff. And one thing led to another and suddenly like that's sort of my thing now. I like I know what they want, but I don't read their version of the script because then how can I direct it if it didn't come from me genuinely, you know? So just to kind of get to the specifics of that as part of your pitch, thank you guys for the call and for considering me. Here's my thoughts on what this could be. That's right, Robert. Exactly. And I usually tell them we haven't worked together. The way I work is that I'm going to throw the ball really far and hand you guys over something maybe next week, like early. It doesn't even have to be on the treatment date. Like it can be before the due date of the treatment. I'm like, I'm just going to throw something out. And if I threw the ball too far, just throw it back at me and then we can talk about it. But it's sort of a way to initiate a dialogue rather than writing something like cracking it in into a stone and like, here's my pitch. And also what it does is like it takes away the fear, I think, because words aren't pressures. I mean, words, we can change words all the time. Like words, the writing isn't a thing we should be, we should hold like as a hostage. Words can change all the time. I'm actually on this big job right now where I'm gladly changing the script. Uh, You know, I think I'm on four complete new versions and the client loves it, the agency loves it because it's like an open conversation and i think that's the way it should be because that's the way you do short films and films you know you never uh, set something in stone and that's rod i think how they come about the the four minute version of uh, of the whatsapp <laughs> ad or something you know <laughs> it usually starts with hey nicholas we would like a 60 second version and then like I present something. I'm like, this is a two and a half hour version uh, of your thing. Would you mind? <laughs> I need your comments on the two and a half hour thing. But would you say your focus and priorities as a director is then on writing or is it visuals, cast, music? I mean, when I see your films, it's like all of that is in there. But- That's so nice. That's so sweet. No, actually, it's a really good question because my thing is writing. And I think that's the foundation of building the house. I mean, people come from this in so many ways, but I believe that if you have a genuine interest in writing and reading, you can also form your own visual language. Like, truthfully, I kind of suck at like finding references and stuff. I have great assistants that find great references that I'm always like, I'm like, oh, that would be beautiful. I tend to hire great cinematographers that can like sort of 
make me look good, <laughs> but I like it, but I'm not good at it, actually. So yeah, writing for sure. But also acting, because I think your choice of cast is really unexpected and fresh, but also super authentic. There's a quote that I read that you said somewhere, even though you haven't acted professionally in over a decade, right. that the knowledge of the craft allows you to push actors and that, because that's something you responded to when you were acting. Me and my therapist have a great explanation how I, <laughs> how, how everything turned out the way it turned out. <laughs> my mom was a hairdresser and I used to after school hang out in her salon and just like, I don't know, sweeping the floors or whatever from the age of, I don't know, six maybe. And you know how in hair salons they have stacks of just gossip magazines, like shit, shitty literature. But I was exposed to that world very early on. And I think... <laughs> Honestly, it comes from that. Like, I'm like, I looked at my type of literature and I read about these movie stars and I'm like, I want to be that. So <laughs> I started acting and I got a bunch of parts. And slowly I started realizing, really feeling like an actor sometimes do, like an outsider of the actual project. Mm. This is obviously something I know now. I, did, I wasn't that clear about it, but I found behind the camera is where the actual magic happened. And I found it very frustrating. If it was like, if I did a feature and I had a small part, for example, like a, and it was like a 30-day shoot, I always wondered what happened in between. So I started creating small things, writing during the shooting, of these films. A lot of the productions just happily let me shoot stuff when I was like hanging out, uh, waiting and stuff. So I, I made a bunch of short films while on set. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, with like the other kid actors. I was in a lot of like kid movies and it was a great opportunity to just like, it was a bunch of actors there. They had cameras. We had a studio floor, all these props, which was fantastic. Like, and so I just, we just started making shit up and I literally just kept doing that until today. Like I just... Yes. Doing that. <laughs> yeah, I just keep doing it. I'm like, where's the prop rock? Where's my actor? But I think, I mean, rather to your first question, I think acting is essentially the only thing we should point the camera towards. I mean, I think in order to convey emotions, you can do it with uh, certain art films and stuff where it's more ambiguous and like it could be shapes and, and colors and stuff. But what I connect to is connecting a face through a machine and to an audience. You know, I think that little magic box between a human and a machine and human, I think is absolutely magical. And I think that's why actors are literally the most important thing we have as directors. Outside of kid acting, Nicholas, did you actually study acting in university or was there any kind of traditional work done to learn the craft of acting? When I was in high school, I did like a college sort of like an undergrad thing. That was really fun to like do the Shakespeare's and stuff. And I just read online, they accepted 16 year olds. So I'm like, fuck it, let's just do it now instead of waiting until I'm 18. <laughs> and I got, I got in. And so, yeah, Robert, I did some traditional work i did my fair share of shakespeare on stage and stuff and yeah I, i'm very lucky it's not shot on film you know or that no one can look it up uh, online. right <laughs> <laughs> although I, I have to show you casper tuxen was also a child actor yeah did you see his little special effects real oh yeah oh yeah baby have you seen his 
unbelievably appropriate commercial for yes. bread. <laughs> yeah, we have. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to have to be on the episode liner notes. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Whatever ad agency had that idea, I think should get like some sort of credit for it. Maybe the most appropriate. Like, so it's good. How do you work as a director who has acting experience? How do you then work with actors? Hmm. Good question. I think, first of all, you need to know their insecurities. I think that's lesson number one. Like, it's very intimidating having 50 people look at you. And when you yell for another take, you can easily feel like it's your fault that you are wasting people's time because you didn't deliver or whatever. Uh, so first of all, you need to know their insecurities. And I think the main approach to my directing, at least, it's to always direct in a positive space. So, for example, when you direct someone, I never use negative terms. So I don't use the word like, don't look here, you know, or like, don't walk over here, or you don't have to show me or stuff like that. I'd rather say what I need and want because you have a little space when you say cut and when you have to think. I've done mistakes before where I, some directors I hear, I've actually experienced this as well. They sit right next to the camera so they can really feel the actor. I try that for a little while. What that did was that the space you have from cut until you either move on or you actually approach the actor, you're not alone. And as a director, you have a little opportunity to think how to direct. And if they see you uh, as the first person, they can interpret the way you react physically and emotionally or whatever. I'd rather hide myself where the actor, at the end of a take, the actor doesn't see me. And I have a little room, we're not talking many seconds, maybe like 30 seconds, where I can phrase my wording into a positive note and then I walk over to my actor so for example like if you need an actor to act less you know instead of saying take it down or if instead of saying not that much or whatever you can instead walk over and say stay do it more for you stay in your zone you know you can actually give them something rather than taking something so I think that's my rule number one and also Actors love to be directed. I think that's everyone, every director should know. They love challenges. We can't be actor shy. And some directors are because actors can be intimidating because they sort of possess something that we don't, you know, they are sort of magical in that way. When you say that you have to discover their insecurities, what does that not, mean? Not necessarily discover, you have to know their insecurities. So if, for example, you need an actor to cry, you can either make the set quiet and you can let everybody know this is an emotional and powerful scene and you you can make this big drama out of it or you can walk up to an actor and say i need you to cry in the next setup how do you want me to do that how can we together get there because they will answer they will let you know they're like yeah let's have the set quiet and let's have as few people as round as possible and let's have everybody naked and let's do it you know or they say, no, no, I got this. Uh, you don't have to do, like, don't make a big deal out of it. You know, you need to talk to your actors. And Robert, that's what I mean with know their insecurities. Because just ask them what makes them insecure mm. and would, what would make them uh, not insecure, you know. Do you do something similar if you were to just walk through just kind of a basic scene? Yeah. Like in this one, we need you to get something from that person and you're in the middle of an argument. How can I help you get there? Like, do you have that type of open dialogue of, 
what do you need to be able to hit this mark or hit this idea? Sometimes every actor is different, right? So some need to know where they come from. And I think that's, you should know that. A helpful tool that I usually do is that I write a little booklet for myself that I have on set with every scene written down and the core of the scene and the intention the actor should have, uh, where the actor's been or where the character's been and where the character's going and why the character's doing whatever he's doing. I don't necessarily, I don't show that to the actor but it's for me so if they have any questions i can always go back to the core i can always say no the core intention here is disconnect but i don't talk in those terms because actors don't like that at all but i I, if i know the core of the scene is disconnect then i can walk up to my cinematographer i can say i need them to disconnect here i need them to actually separate and I can direct my actors in that way. I can use disconnecting words. Take an example as the separation scene in my WhatsApp ad. That The disconnect there was very easy to do because I knew it was going to be both visually about a disconnect, but also them. You know, then the actor can talk. He's like, well, I should probably then turn my back around. I'm like, well, would you turn your back against the one you love? And he's like, if I didn't want to see her face, yes. He's like, okay. He turns his back around. And then I'm like, would you, to her then, I'm like, would you stay? She's like, no, but I think everything should go dark. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting thing from an actor. Would you close your door as a go dark? She's like, no, I would never close my door. I'm like, okay, cool. So I just told Lena Sangren to shut shut the ad. I'm like, let's just turn off the lights. So all of a sudden with your actors, you create this thing because I could have the idea in my head, but the idea gets so much better when you work with talented people. For sure. Well, I mean, one of our questions to you was going to be to describe your process with collaborators because you've attracted such great collaborators to you at such an early stage, like Lena Sandgren, who you're just talking about. Can you describe your process with collaborators? Do you try to use the same people over and over again? Uh, Sometimes. I think it's a good notion as a filmmaker generally to know who you work well with. So I think I explored a lot of people, but as a rule, I approach people I'm very inspired by. So whether whether I work with uh, a cinematographer who won a lot of awards or if I work with a set designer, I think you don't need to know what their job is. Oh, you probably need to know what their job is about, but you don't need to know how to do their job. And especially as a young director, sometimes you need to work with people that doesn't inspire you. So you need to sort of push. That's good to a certain degree, but it's unbelievably helpful to have someone that you look up to push you as a director. So it comes from another source. And I first discovered that when I worked with uh, Rodrigo Prieto. We did a thing uh, years back. And his approach to cinematography, obviously, I mean, he's an unbelievably talented cinematographer working with Scorsese and all, all those guys. I felt suddenly, I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm in the hands of a master now. I need to be better now. I need to push myself in order to deliver uh, to him and not only to an agency or to an actor or whatever. That was probably maybe eight years ago. And from that moment on, I'm like, I need those people. You know, I want those people around me. Yeah. I guess I get nervous about sometimes reaching out to people like that. Uh, not that I can afford it, but (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you will so soon next week for sure next week, yeah. my next week in theory like if i could i would i would be nervous because i was like oh they're gonna show up and they're not really gonna care maybe and yeah that fear is i think is valid and you should be scared i mean because who are you next to whatever but that person will judge that not you necessarily i mean you can only ask if you get a no you get a no and you will get a, a hundred no but that doesn't really matter but i think the question is always there and the benefit of a, a, a yes is so big then the risk is i think mm. on collaborations like that do you create certain conditions to try to make that work better when you feel like you're really stretching like for instance i know you're just finishing your first feature film and i know you're you're working with really huge collaborators in terms of actors how do you yeah. how do you stretch in a situation like that being a young director you have a you have a superpower and i think that is being naive uh because no one taught you how the industry works no one taught you how to do shit you know you can only listen to people like really smart people on youtube knowing stuff but that's a beautiful little space you have and i think I hope I wish even after this movie that I can stay naive. But you guys know this as well. I mean you guys are I mean surely just starting out but you do so so well but like don't you feel like after every job your naivete is sort of like hindered a little bit. You're like, "Oh, I'm not going to do that next time" or "I'm not going to" Don't you feel that way? Well, I mean, this is also part of it's a weird catch 22, right? Because you've clearly even had the experience of I mean I think every every filmmaker does where you shoot something and you're like well we could have probably shot that <laughs> we could have shot that better and so you kind of do that process of self auditing and then in that rigor of an audit you also kind of self learn you you know how to be better right but i think also it's something about the space of not knowing that's so beautiful mm -hmm. and i think uh approaching really big names that clearly know they know we you know they know way more than you you can almost act like what if we do this and you can tell sometimes in there sometimes when i work with linus is obviously way more experienced than i am i'm like what if we step on this you know what if we do this and i have no idea what i'm really talking about but since he's my cinematographer he needs to meet me somehow and that can sometimes be really fun because he needs to explore and i need to explore and it becomes this weird thing and and i had this i mean sure you're right right in my movie i have unbelievably talented actors but i felt that my uh sort of childishness and my and by me not knowing how to direct them we just sort of built like this very special thing and in the end i think you can actually tell like some of these performances are maybe the best in their career and maybe because of that because i didn't have any uh knowledge of how to direct a a two-time oscar winner you know you're talking about you and mcgregor i'm talking about he doesn't he didn't win uh, uh he didn't win an oscar yet but he might <laughs> might actually yeah uh but uh, i have a couple of other oscar winners in my movie and i and it's very intimidating but then again they like to play right uh they like to play and also i don't know i have a great anecdote from one of my first ever ads i did was this uh sports brand swedish sports brand they've never done any film any anything they've done stills campaign before but they wanted sort of a nike campaign right but they had 50,000 euros i think 
And I told them, I'm like, look, I mean, for me, I'm 19 years old, 50,000 euros. I can probably build like a castle for, you know, but if you ask any other director, it's like not even a, it's not even a day of shooting, you know, like you will get like a day in Stockholm maybe, but I can take those 50,000. I mean, this is radical, but I can take those $50,000. I can do a road trip uh, through America, like during two weeks, shoot on the way, cast on the way. You guys give me a couple of bags of your clothes and we can do something. And they said, yes, but they got like 20, 20 shooting days out of <laughs> nothing. I got, I think I got paid two, 2K and I was, I was so happy. And, but it turned out great because I was naive. I would never do that today. And that's what I mean with that, Robert. Like, I don't know, like I would, I would probably never say that i would say no you need you need three and a half million dollars for sure if you but but that i i actually hate that about myself and i think that space (laughs) in between being a young director and an established director is so pure and so beautiful i mean it was me and you and prosovsky traveling across the southern states just shooting we had i think 30 rolls of 60 mil it was me him my producer and one guy from the agency the first week, kind of. And we just drove. We just drove and shot, you know? That sounds so good. That sounds so freeing. <laughs> right? As a young director, you can do that. And I think, in a way, you should approach everything in that way, I think. I'm jealous of my former self, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the power of naivete. Mm. I mean, I think that might be the title of this episode. <laughs> That's a good title. No, but I'm telling you guys, you guys have that opportunity now. You know, you can do that. We Well, honestly, we're just like, whatever comes our way, we just say yes. I, we talked about this over dinner the other day. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, it shoots next week. And normally this is... Uh, three, three weeks three weeks to prep. We, yeah, we, we, could, we could prep that in five days. Sure, yeah. no problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I read the same thing and I'm like, impossible. I would never, don't ever yeah. send me this, you know? <laughs> but then that's the problem. Like, I, then I will watch your thing and I will be like, fuck, I should have done this. This is so good. They did something with it. Why did I... <laughs> but that's you know. the space where new directors enter, right? Like... Mm. The, Places where things feel impossible, you know, the places that things are maybe not as well resourced. That's it. Yeah. One thing that really struck us over dinner too, you tell clients that you're the representation of the audience. And I don't know if it's something you want to talk about or not today, but we cannot stop talking about it because that just like (laughs) synthesized something in our brains (laughs) that was really quite valuable. I think it's a very important aspect of being especially a commercial director as from an agency point of view you sit uh, for maybe years sometimes with a one campaign and you have no idea if this is good or bad or if it's just like filtered through a couple of marketing executives and all of a sudden it's this whatever glue I don't know whatever thing you have and you're like all right I guess we have a budget now and I guess they need a film And they have the opportunity to send it out to a couple of people to sort of interpret the years of experience. Why wouldn't you ask a commercial director use that and tell them, this is great, but there's a better version of this. And I know that because I, for the first time in months for you, I, as an audience, can read this and interpret it. So they send it out to a unique person to just be like, is this the best? Is this the thing now? Should we shoot this? And 
I always tell my clients and both agencies and real clients, I say to them, look, I'm the only one that can represent the audience because you don't know. You have, like the agency have an agenda. The client has an agenda. Everyone has bosses. I'm like, I don't have any boss. I'm going to be very honest with you. If I don't agree with certain things that you do, I might shoot it for you because you pay me. But as an audience, I will react to this. And I think if I were a client, I would love someone like that. I mean, it might seem a bit radical, but I think that's what they actually maybe pay for. At least I have opinions. You so know? It's interesting, this idea that you're being commissioned to basically execute on a very specific thing that has a very specific end agenda and what it's trying to kind of communicate and that there you feel like that there's space here as a director to still be like yeah but wait a second like as as audience it doesn't communicate to me or yeah. maybe it could communicate in a different way in a better way in so many examples we see also this robert like i mean i'm not going to mention any brands here but there was a it was a very blue campaign from a soda <laughs> from a soda yes. ad how come <laughs> I, i'm always fascinated about that ad specifically because i they hired it was a director there you know i i'm not surprised about the ideas because i can see all the agency's wishes and i can see the client's wishes and they need to have blue flags there and they need to have they need to be inclusive there and like i can see all that but as a director your job is to render that into something that someone can relate to because no one can relate to a, a, a marketing team no one can relate to an ad agency but they can relate to a filmmaker that's for sure because we're humans so looking at those like especially that film i'm like what where that your job here is to not do this oh my god uh, i love that my know. job is not to do this okay i'm definitely gonna try and <laughs> <laughs> You've just empowered me and a whole host. Of Shit, oh yeah, I might be sued. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, Nicholas, when we spoke last was this idea of, I think, objectively looking at your work or kind of like the, the landscape of uh, your reel. There's a lot of pieces that are two minutes long, three minutes long, you know, feature that might not be as product-centric as U.S. agency kind of renders right. pieces out to. And I asked you and had wondered if how much of that work was actually like a, a director's cut or like a, a cut that you were kind of doing outside of um, the kind of main delivery of, a, of the job. And you brought up that you actually had sold that work through. Mm. And that had kind of really, that had really kind of perplexed me because... Mm. So much of it's like a little bit of what you were speaking about before, but they call you up and they say, okay, well, we, Nicholas, we want this 60 and it kind of has to do this thing and feel this way. And then when I look at your showreel, your showreel has more or less like um, if I were to be a reductionist, like kind of beautiful little short films mm. or kind of like narrative kind of flourishes to that. So I, maybe we could just speak a little bit on how you're actually getting that work across the line if those works aren't specifically director cuts. I think it's good. Your job is not to make a director's cut. I think as a, as a commercial director, your job is, is trying to avoid a director's cut as much as you possibly can, because a director's cut is not the job. Imagine if you paid an architect to build you a house and the architect goes away and like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll build you the house, but next to the house, I'll build you this very beautiful other house that's way longer 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, I'm like, why didn't I get that house too? Or could we talk about it, you know? Um, yeah. I think what I try at least to do is to understand the client's real need. I ask them a lot of questions in the first call about the conversations, especially the agency and the client has over where the space for this film or for these moving images, um, where, where that space is. And lately, what I understand is that the market, the money from the market comes usually from an agreement that we need six second versions and we need 15 second versions. And maybe if we can afford it, we need a 30 second for a couple of markets. So that's the house. You need to build that house. Uh, that's your job, right? So you need to, you need to deliver that the best you, in, in your ability. Uh, but then you can say, well, from my perspective, I think we have something bigger and larger and more important here. We have maybe a love story, actually. Have you guys considered this? And, um, and a love story takes more than 30 seconds to, to, to convey. Um, some can probably, I mean, maybe it doesn't. I haven't seen it really. I need at least a minute and a half. And I tell them, wouldn't it be great if we have this house? Wouldn't it be great if we also built this thing? And they can say, then, then you usually hear, yeah, but we, we're not going to pay for that. We, don't, we can't afford that. Like, we can't. I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, uh, it, that's on me. But what I, need in, what I need you to do is that I need your same client comments on the longer version. Mm. And I also, I need you to respect that as your cut. But I also need, uh, I'll do it for free, but I need you to put some marketing money into it. Wouldn't it be great if this is on your official site somewhere? Because then I can grow as a director and I can also grow your brand as a brand because it's going to be a beautiful brand film. Surely enough, it's not going to be on TV or whatever. But what, what could be fun is if it's online and has a little online life. And if, if we're really lucky, it will be cool as a cinema version. And they usually say, well, let's, let's think of whatever. And then you shoot your thing and you have all these extra scenes that is for brand. You talk about the brand. No, no, we have budgeted for this. You don't have to worry. You will get your house. You will get the six second versions. You will get all that juice. And I, that's the focus, but I also focus on this other thing. That's just smart scheduling. Uh, mm -hmm. And then in the edit, you show them this beautiful, big, bold vision you have. And you're like, look, this is your brand. You should be proud of this. And it's nothing out of the ordinary. Look, I think making a director's cut for the sake of being longer than a 30 sucks. Mm -hmm. You should always make your cut. The, sh the shorter, the better. I hate when I see a director's cut that is six minutes just because someone wants to do a six minute short. It could easily be reducted to three, for example. So give them a short, sweet, beautiful little product uh, that you can, that you can like, I need comments on this. What do you say? And very rarely in my experience, they say, Get it, take it out, get it out of the room. Like, we don't want to see it. That, I've never had that experience. Usually what I hear is, oh, we would love that online. Maybe we can, oh, cool. Can we add a little bit more car? Or can we add a little bit more phone? And then you say, of course, it's your thing. Let's add a little bit of phone. Let's build a terrace or let's build a new kitchen. That's fine. 
knowing that you can control that, you know, and then you don't end up with a director's cut because we, we usually the problem is that you, or like directors show them the thirties and the six second cuts. And then they say, all right, bye. And then they do, they spend two and a half months on a director's cut that they release on Instagram. And everyone's like, Oh, cool. Like, I don't know to what usage other than your Instagram profile is this, is this, who's this for? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's about defining the actual job, I think. That's why I don't do director's cuts necessarily. I mean, this is an awesome piece of advice. So if on their sixes and 15s and 30s, they have debatably bad VO, bad music, bad choices. Yeah. I'm not talking at all about anything we're working on. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> there, there are times where certain decisions have to be made that are based on uh, specific agendas or need to communicate a specific thing, but that doesn't necessarily align perfectly with selling the best piece of film or piece of emotional content. So let's say you have a six or a 15 that has choices you may not be happy with or may not align with Mm -hmm. this longer piece. How do you, how do you navigate? In my experience, when they have their house, Mm -hmm. they usually, the comments that come from, from, for the long versions are usually very simple because they know that, who cares if 2000 people sees this or if a million people sees this? it doesn't, that's not the, what I can go back to my marketing director with is these short things. And then as a surprise, I can show a long film if I want to, but as a surprise, I have this other treat. And I've experienced clients that says, they say, thank you, but we have no usage for this. And that's when I decide to, in collaboration with the agency, that's when I decide to, I'm like, is it okay if I, because this is cool for me. They like, and usually yes, right? But, but rarely does a client say no to, a, to something free. And I think, Robert, to answer your question, that's because you know their basic needs for the other thing. Mm. Uh, and then you need to be smart because it, because a director's <laughs> cut can't be uh, a complete different campaign. It needs to right. stay in the line because otherwise what I'd say to young directors specific, specifically sometimes is to like, if you want to explore something that no one understands and th- then go explore it through music videos or through your art project, mm-hmm. don't take, a client that pays a lot of money and risk a lot of things to hire you don't take their uh, time to show off that you can like stay on one shot for 15 and a half minutes like that's they don't think that's cool no one actually does but but uh so you have to be you have to be smart there i suppose this is great we're cooking in a great way yeah (laughs) looking back at the start of your journey as a director do you have any tips for your past self that you wish you knew then that you know now? Uh, yes, I do. I wish I didn't respect more senior opinions the way I did. Hmm. Just because uh, someone senior, whether it's another director or whatever, whoever it is, an agency, just because they been around more doesn't mean their opinion is better yeah Mm -hmm. i felt sometimes a couple of years ago that i listened to the senior opinions a bit too much i thought they were better than my opinions because they would know better 
But that's just simply not true. I especially learned that when I, I made my first short film when, when I was 19 called Vatten. It was a love story um, under in a, in a swimming pool. And in, in the script, I had a bunch of very um, sexually uh, explicit scenes that I, as a 19-year-old boy, felt the need to explore through my art. But on a script level, senior comments were, you, sh- you should take, you should remove those. And I, I, I hear as an adult reading a 19-year-old script that you can have those because it's a bit embarrassing as an adult to read a 19-year-old sexual fantasies maybe and why now and why stuff like that. So I, I removed them. And the film turned out fa- fine. But as now, as a filmmaker, as an adult, I wish I kept them there because mm. they would have said something about me at that time, how I, how I explored sexual content with the camera, how as a, as a storyteller, how, what would that feel and how, how I could grow from there. So I, I miss those things. And that, that's just one example of like when a senior comment could actually in the long run destroy, maybe, maybe they were right. Who knows, right? We never shot those things. And most likely they were right. But that's, that's beside the point. Uh, the point is as a young adventurer, you need to take different paths sometimes and new and unexplored paths because you you don't know what you don't know and that's that's fucking beautiful so usually what i if i give comments on a script or whatever now if i read something that embarrasses me a little bit that i should probably as a filmmaker and as an adult give notes on i i think again i'm i'm like all right i have no idea what you want to do there like i have literally i don't understand that thing but I love that I don't understand that thing. Mm. So yeah, to my younger self, I would say, just just say fuck off a little bit more <laughs> because so much stuff that you just need to shoot just because you want to shoot them because you don't have a reason for it. You just, just want to shoot them because it's fun and it's weird and it's beautiful. I mean, you can look at, like we all do, I suppose, look up tremendously to Paul Thomas Anderson and he made a Boogie Nights when he was uh, 21, right? And it's such a, as an adult filmmaker and as an adult generally, it's such a flawed film. If you think about it, it's, it's about a guy with a big dick in the movie industry. I mean, l- listen to the, t- the absurdity of that film. And of course he has a mother who doesn't care about him. And of course, you know, like, of course he's on drugs. And of course, I mean, because it's a 21 year old who wrote it. That's, f- that's what it was. How- that's exactly how it is to be a 21 year old. And imagine him being like, yeah, we should probably make his dick normal sized and maybe we shouldn't you know maybe we should take away yeah maybe his mother should be loving because the truth is mothers are always loving even if they're yelling or whatever like it wouldn't have been boogie nights for goodness sake you know uh he said on record something that i loved which is you know magnolia was kind of like a healing film for him right he was coming out of a lot of pain and personal 
Mm. personal experience in that and says that now when he looks back at it he would cut that film down (laughs) i've heard that too but that's beautiful there's a without geeking too much on pta but i've always loved that to kind of piggyback on this young filmmaker ideas there's always a scene in heart eight that kind of strikes me which is like when he lights a match and when he's lighting the match his like pants somehow kind of get lit on fire as well. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a small kind of throwaway, cutaway type of moment scene that you could tell a very young person thought that was funny or thought that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's it's fantastic that you can look back. If you don't censor yourself with senior comments, you can look back at those things wanting to cut this cut Magnolia shorter, but you you can't now. You were 30, you were 28 or whatever when he, yeah, he's not allowed to cut it shorter. But all, of course, we all know Magnolia would have been a, such a better film if it was half an hour shorter. We all know the mid part is just, I think he has one score that goes on for 45 minutes. And it's clearly a young guy on coke that did it, which is fine. That's great. That's beautiful. And but as a 55-year-old super senior filmmaker, he can see that and he can be like, yeah, you should cut, you should cut it because it's embarrassing. You know? <laughs> and I don't, you know what? I don't even think it comes down to age, but I think what it comes down to is embracing where you're at in the journey because right. what you don't know is actually the power. Yeah. And it's actually something Robert and I have sort of started to talk about, which is like just sort of surrendering to the fact that we're just, we don't know. We don't yeah. know. We don't know. You just don't know. And it's beautiful. Can you imagine when you don't know, where do you place the camera? I think that, just think about that notion. We have to place the camera somewhere. When you don't know, where the fuck do you place the camera? And I think that's like, that's fun. That's fantastic. But Spielberg and Scorsese, it, it, it's not Taxi Driver anymore, you know? I value it as a, a senior filmmaker, but it doesn't inspire me because he didn't know how to shoot the taxi necessarily. And it's something unbelievably pure and beautiful about not knowing where to place the camera, you know? I love this. Yeah, this is yeah. So good. This is excellent. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Oh, yeah, thank, thank you, thank you Nicholas. This was no, fantastic. for sure. Thank you. And let's get, let's get together for dinner soon. This episode was sponsored by Some Such, Cartel Edit, Bonaparte, Unstudios, and Supreme Music. Special thanks to our producer, Joe Yardley, and the entire team at YDA. The Young Directors Award is in its 26th year at Cannes and is the biggest fringe festival to exclusively promote the debut of directing talent in the commercial, music video, and short form space. 